is up, guys? My name is KJ, and this is Why Theology. Today, me and Creston Thomas will be dealing with Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. Stay tuned. What's up, man? Can you hear me, Creston? Yeah, I can hear you, man. All right. Um, does my voice sound pretty clear? I know I got to try and take this jacket. I was a little bit hot over here. <laughs> it's all good, man. You sound good, brother. All right, man. We've been having connection problems, guys, so we're going to try to redo this real quick. Um, last week, we dealt with Revelation. Uh, me and Crescent are teaching the book of Revelation, and um, every Tuesday, I'll try to release the episode. Lord willing, if I don't die. But uh, last Tuesday, we talked about um, verses 1 through 3, and that was a wonderful um, teaching. Uh, Crescent, the wonderful job breaking that down, and we walked through it together. Uh, do you remember anything from last week, man, you want to talk about, or? Man, no, man, it was a great study, man. I think you made a lot of good points as well as thinking about how this book is shaped and the genre of the book and who was it written to. And uh, it's just an encouraging book um, for believers to be encouraged that Jesus is victorious. And even through suffering, his people will be victorious. And we already seen that already in the language in the first three verses um, of, uh, of, of Revelation that uh, it's talking about the, the victorious work of Christ. Hmm. One of man, like this week as well, we're gonna be dealing with um, verses four through eight. And um, again, if you have not listened to um, the last couple episodes, the first episode I dealt with like a kind of overview of like the entire book. That's a great episode. Go check that out. And then last week again, like Kristen said, we did verses one through three. Now today, uh, we're gonna be doing verses four through eight, and then next week we'll probably do nine through the end, depending on how both our schedules looking. But um, Kristen, you mind reading those verses for us, man? Yeah, sure, man. Jump right into it. Uh, Revelation chapter 1, I'm going to start at verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and, and who was and who is to come, from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the rulers of the kings on the earth, to him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made a kingdom, made us a kingdom, a priest to his God and father to him. Be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse seven. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all trials on the other earth will well on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Hmm. Just listen to that, man. There's a couple of things that kind of in the text that just stood out that says, teach this, teach this. <laughs> the first one, um, Verse four, and let's talk about them seven churches right there. You might read just that verse four again. I don't have my Bible in front of me, but we'll get to this. <laughs> oh, no, it's all good, man. Um, verse four, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And, that, and that's verse four. All right. 
So just in that alone right there, we have context. You guys know one of the biggest things when you read the scriptures, understanding the author's original, you know, content of behind writing that. Of course, we know all scripture is, you know, for believers, edification of that. But this particular book, John is, you know, giving you the context right here, verse four. And so last week, uh, verses one through three was a little introduction behind, you know, the book, kind of like a preface. And now finally, okay, here's like the real deal. This is what's going on now. John says this book is for these seven churches. And these seven churches, I'm going to help, help me out a little bit. One of them is Laodicea. Another one is Sardis. We have uh, Philadelphia, uh, Thyatira. Let me see. Um, Pargama, Smyrna. <laughs> yeah, Smyrna. Yeah. Smyrna, yeah. I think I'm missing one. Uh, made through all of them. Not, did you mention uh, Ephesus, Philadelphia? Yeah, Ephesus. That's what it was, Ephesus. Right. So we have Ephesus, Laodicea. Sardis, Philadelphia, uh, Pergama, Smyrna, he said, and then Ephesus. Yeah. All right. And all, and all these seven churches are in the area of the Providence of, uh, in Asia, what we know is like Asia Minor area. And so uh, these are all churches. And we see right here, um, if you look on the map on geographical at this time, um, a geographical layout of these seven churches, they will all be in like a circle. It'd be like in a circle. And so uh, we see in verse four, I'm um, talking about seven churches. And we're going to see the word seven quite a bit um, throughout this study. Uh, and the word seven, we're going to see it commonly represent like this fullness of uh, the fullness um, of something. We talk about seven bowls, seven spirits or seven candlesticks. And so we're going to hear about seven, seven trumpets quite a bit. So seven deals with this fullness. And so these seven churches represent the fullness of um of the churches that are around in the different areas and um and we know at this time it was a church called uh, church in corinth um we had churches uh churches different places even had the church in jerusalem and so uh we had churches in rome and so uh so even though he mentioned seven um it is more churches that exist at this time than just the seven here that he's mentioning that he's writing his letter so he writing his letter to mm. I kind of want to piggyback off that statement. Uh, Jim Hamilton, his commentary, he said something similar about like, um, even though we have just seven churches that John is writing to, these seven churches make up kind of like the makeup of what was going on in this time period. And so as we get into like chapters two and three, you will see like Jesus kind of addressing all seven of those churches. And each one of those addresses kind of like made up exactly like those addresses can like go to the other churches in the city as well. So yeah. it kind of made up of yeah. all those, you know, the same issues or encouragement. It's kind of universal for that time period. But it's also applicable to us today as well, because we're not just, as you guys know, a church is consistent of believers. And so and we get there in a little bit in the future. You kind of see what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, I mean, and you're thinking about the issues that was going on in the seven churches. Um, one of them lost their first love. Um, one of them had false teachings in it. Um, lack of discernment that some of them had their works. Um, someone was just spiritually blinded with things, lukewarm. So if just me mentioning those things, um, we see a lot of those things. I mean, <laughs> just think about the first Corinthian church, even though Corinth is not mentioned, just think about the issues going on in the Corinthian church. And, uh, and so these are the same issues that we see that he's addressing with these churches. We see a lot of that happened in the Corinthian church. And also when Paul was writing to the Roman church, encouraging them. So these seven churches in the simplify, exemplify 
pretty much almost all churches that exist at this time. And no church, um, say, was a church that was, say, issue-free, even though Smyrna, it, I don't think it's rebuked for Smyrna in this text, but uh, but it still was issue in every church uh, that uh, that existed in Asia Minor and uh, around at this time. All right. Let's talk about... Um... You look look past the seven churches. The next part it says, "Grace to you and peace." It sounds like Paul, right? <laughs> His introduction, like his epistles. Yeah, exactly, man. Uh, and that's the one of the first things that stand out to me, man. Is uh, it, it sounds just like the language of Paul to the epistles. Paul normally say, "Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ." Uh, we see here um, this similar, very similar, but he doesn't. Um, he doesn't kind of lay it all out like Paul. Paul kind of compacts it all in. He put, you know, <laughs> Father and Jesus all in there once. I think John kind of spreads it out. And um, with John spreading this out and everything, he kind of deals with the spirit at the end of verse 4 with some of the seven spirits. Then in verse 5, he talks about and from Jesus Christ. Um, and so he still lays out the, the triune God in this, but he kind of Unpack it a little bit more than what Paul has done to us when he actually begins the letter. Mm. Kind of interesting. Um, how um, let's kind of go back a little bit. You know, for somebody that's kind of you know, is not as educated or has not been reading, you know, throughout the scriptures. How would you define grace? Because John opens up, he says, "Grace to you." What is grace? I think John, and I think we didn't. I don't know if we mentioned about John yet. I don't think we mentioned about John. Um, John is um, is what we know as. Uh, the one that wrote the gospel of John. Um, yeah. It wasn't John the Baptist. Um, what the account that John has given to us is that he was able to see, and we're going to see throughout the rest of this book, um, John is writing to this and relating to, um, even we're going to see this in verse 5, that Jesus is a faithful witness. Um, John the Baptist, you know, he was faithful. And Jesus said about John the Baptist, like, there's no other man that walks this earth that, that he would see that's so noble than John the Baptist. But even in that time when John was in prison, John actually doubted that time. And so, uh, but the gospel of John, the, the, the writer, the brother, the John and James of Zebedee, the brothers of thunder, this John here that wrote this, uh, this John is actually able to describe that Jesus was truly faithful. Um, John the Baptist didn't see the end of this. He, he saw a little bit of snippet of Jesus uh, throughout his life. But John, the, 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 the disciple, he was able to walk with Jesus and see the true fulfillment of what Jesus done throughout his ministry. And so um, so this is John that's writing this, that's a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so John would be the main one to understand the grace and peace that come from our Lord Jesus Christ. This word grace we know as in Greek is charis. It deals with like this kindness. Uh, we see this in um, Acts 15.40. We see it in Romans 16.24. Um, but also you see it in other places deal with like this grace representing gifts or, mm -hmm. or, or for us to be thankful for, goodwill or favor towards. And so this grace unpacks so many things that we get as believers that we don't deserve. So it's like this, this kindness, this merit God gives us of goodwill that we truly don't deserve. He gives it to us, not because of what we have done, because of his nature and his goodness in himself, he gives it to his church and gives it to his believers. And so John is starting this off with um, writing and encouraging the church. He's telling these people. And at this time, right here, the Roman government is still in control. 
Um, and you also had a lot of Jewish people, even though they was going through different things right now with, with government, the Jewish people were still, that wasn't believers, they were still persecuting the church. And the Roman government persecuting the church. So the church was getting it from different angle, angles. So while John is writing his letter, he was reminding them what Paul has already told him. He was reminding them what Jesus already told him. He's saying, grace, remember that grace, grace to you. And you think about it, how can John give them grace? I mean, he's a finite being. But John is, is, is speaking in boldness, this inspired word that God has given an authority to say, this is God is speaking to him and to remind the church of the grace they have been given that they truly don't deserve. And not only grace they are given, they also are given something else we know of in the rest of that verse. It's the word we know as peace. And so they are given peace as well. And peace deals with this uh, in the sense of this reconciliation we have in God. That we don't, you know, we're not enemies anymore. Um, we are actually friends of God with this peace that we have. And so um, this peace is, this was this harmony. You know, we're not at odds anymore. This harmony we have with God. Um, we are truly free from from being in being in sense of at war against God. Because in Genesis three, the word you know transgress deal with the word in Hebrew as pasha, as someone being at war. But right now we are not at war. So he's writing this letter to the surfing churches that hey, you have grace from God, but also you get peace from God. And man, what better joy to start off a letter to the church? Hmm. I think I've also heard it said as well. I think it's a grace is giving you something you don't deserve. And then, you know, mercy, of course, is giving you, uh, what is How do you go? How does it go? <laughs> I've got yeah. the mercy part. Yeah. 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 Mercy is, uh, we're not getting, uh, what, what we you do deserve. deserve. Yeah. And grace is we're getting, um, we're getting things, uh, that we don't deserve. That we don't deserve. Yes. Yeah, that's that same grace you see here. I want to read Romans 5 as well. You thought about that peace part. Uh, Romans 5, verse 1, uh, Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so notice how it is being justified before God that brings true peace. And John, like you said, is reminding of what Paul and all the other apostles have said. True peace and true grace is found in Jesus. It's not found in anything else. And so what a, like, a wonderful reminder that like, even, you know, right now in the context, we may be experiencing like um, for the Christians in, that, in early you know church history, we may be experiencing terrible persecution by, you know, the emperor Domitian, but we have grace and peace. And, How and, wonderful. Right? And, and think about it, KJ, in this verse, this is how we know John is not writing in his own authority. He's writing from the authority of Christ. So after he said grace to you and peace, he lets us know where the peace comes from. This peace right here comes from him. This is actually a um, what we know as um, in our text, uh, the word from, from him. Um, this him deals with, um, I don't know if this is in a data for what, 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 what actual uh, sentence of speech is, but it's from him. And who is this him? It says who is, who was, and who is to come. It lets us know that this him is talking about Jesus. And he actually let us know is that who is, which is pre, uh, which is the word is, is present tense, who was, right? As yes. someone that, that for him, as he was, it came in the past, but also he's coming again with his participle, who is to come. That he's coming. It's, it's the ing in here. 
he is coming. He did come. Uh, he has come now. And so what is what is what is John getting at is saying that hey, who he is now? Well, Jesus is still living right now. He's incarnate mm. and sitting at the right hand of his father. So that's how he's able to say who, who was and who he is. He didn't only come at his incarnation, but he also is here right now with these suffering saints through praying through their pains and troubles. Jesus sits at the right end of the throne with them, who is, right? This is deals with the present tense, that Jesus is one that's right here. And also it deals with the end of this, it's that he's coming too. Hmm. So that covers all of history. That covers all the future. That covers right now. That suffering saints, Jesus hears you, and he would never leave you. How wonderful, man. How wonderful. If you remember, like, um, I know right now, you know, me and you preaching the book of Acts in our, our church. And um, I had preached a while ago when uh, the apostles, you know, they had preached the gospel. And um, what is it? The Sanhedrin, they put them in a you know, jail and the angel of the Lord came out and released them. And they went back to the same spot they did got arrested from. And they received a beating. And it says they counted it worthy to receive that beating from Jesus. And so John, like, it's kind of it's wonderful how God's working this out. But like now, you know, also like the context, John has just, just been placed inside of a boiling pot. Now there's no in the world, just knowing me, I could do what John, he was preaching the gospel while being burnt alive in a boiling pot. And he's kind of reminding these, these, these other people that like Jesus still reigning. Jesus still reigning, like you said, even in our circles, Jesus is still king, who was, who is, and who will come. Like how wonderful, man. Man, that, that's just so encouraging. And you see that in Acts, you know, as Jesus sits on the right of the throne, you see the ass of the Ask of Jesus through his apostles now. Like he's reigning, he but he's living through his apostles and he's leading them for them to have all boldness. Cause man, look at the, the gospel of uh, all the gospels. I mean, the, the disciples, man, think about, you know, Peter doubtful self. Think about Thomas and everything. Say, hey, I got to touch his hands and he afraid to go back to Jerusalem. He's going to be put to death. Um, the, the brother, John, they're running to write this book. Him and his brother want to sit on the, th on the throne with Jesus. They was terrible throughout the gospel of the apostles and the disciples. But now we see in the Acts, it's all of a sudden to turn upside down. They got full of boldness. And they get the same boldness that Jesus had. They get it. And they don't mind being persecuted. And the more they get persecuted, now 5,000 people get added to the church. Mm. So whenever persecution comes, the church grows through this. And so John is getting at this already in his letter. Let them know, regardless of all what you're going through, Jesus is with you right now through suffering. Uh, Jesus with you and guess what he's going to come back again as well and so we see this in, in, in our test as we see that Jesus is reigning with Do I still got you Kristen can you, yeah yeah can you yeah like the odd meal on how they see that yeah. Jesus is reigning and I think I can go off this verb right here is that who is this present tense the saying is he's right here He's right here reigning right now and caring for his people. That's kind of what they're seeing here in this text, how Jesus caring for them even in the midst of suffering. We both would be in agreement there, both in agreement that Christ is reigning. You go back to the Great Commission, all authority on earth has been given to me, both heaven and on earth. Um, Paul says in Philippians 2, um, he, Christ died on the cross by being obedient, you know, even to the point of death. Therefore, God has exalted him above every name, every niche of Bible before the Lord, right? And so all throughout the New Testament, you see Christ is reigning. But it's so wonderful that, like, the grace and peace we have, that we can rejoice in our sufferings. It comes from remembering 
who Christ is. Now, this may seem kind of odd, but John, he kind of mentions the Holy Spirit. You probably wonder, you know, where did he do that at? So look at verse seven, uh, verse four, I meant it says, John, seven churches are in Asia. Grace to you and peace for him who is and who was to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus. And so when you think about this, um, Jim Hamilton, his commentary, also John Gill, a Reformed Baptist guy, they both are in agreement on this. But they said, um, again, the audience or the context of what John is writing to are the believers that are inside those seven churches. And so basically what they were getting at is each one of those seven churches have the Holy Spirit there. And so John is kind of saying that, you know, great grace to you, peace from the Father, the Son, and also the Holy Spirit, kind of bringing that triune God here, that we have grace and peace from this triune God. Absolutely. We, we see the same language right here with the with spirits. Um, uh, I think in Isaiah, um, in, in Isaiah text, he talks about the, the these different, um, I think like the different spirits. And the spirit, you know, it's not saying like there's seven Holy Spirits. Um, what it's talking about in the sense of the fullness of the Holy Spirit and how what the Holy Spirit comes and it brings, he brings wisdom. He brings grace. He brings, he brings all these things. So it's from the fullness of the spirit. And this brother, like I say, brings in this Trinity here. They're talking about the one who is and was to come. He's talking about Jesus. And um, then it says, and from the seven spirits. Now he's talking about the Holy Spirit here. That man, we don't get half of the Holy Spirit. We get all of the Holy Spirit and through suffering. The Holy Spirit is going to be there with us through the suffering because the Holy Spirit proceeds not only from Jesus. It talks about this, I think, in Chalcedon, the Council of Chalcedon. Um, the Spirit doesn't just only proceed from Jesus. It also proceeds from the Father. That the, the Spirit, the Father mm -hmm. and the Son sends this Spirit to care for the true church. And so through the midst of suffering, we have the true Spirit right there with us, caring for us, in the midst of suffering. Probably should go without asking too, uh, what I was saying that we probably should mention that like, when you think about the God, one aspect about Christianity is that we don't believe in three gods, we believe in one triune God. So there's one essence, but within God, there's three distinct persons. And this third person here is the Trinity, not the Trinity, <laughs> the Holy Spirit. And so even though like, you know, the Holy Spirit in his text may be preceded from Jesus, as it does not mean that he's, um, lesser in power or he's not as equal to the father and the son they're all equal and same in it yes yeah, yeah exactly it's the the beautiful harmony of the trinity is that not, not only the son cares for us the spirit cares for us as well um because you see it too john is using words to heightening the 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 hiding the the glory of the godhead right here he could he could have just said jesus you know who was and who is to come but John is, is heightening this up. He said, who was, who is. He letting them know. He's trying to enter the pain with them and letting them know that, hey, God is coming. Jesus coming. He's reigning. But not only Jesus, he even uses heightened picture, even the spirit. He could have just said Holy Spirit, but he said the seven spirit. I know one person said that, that the Holy Spirit describes the sevenfold perfection of his graces upon Christ. And I think it's kind of uh, points like Isaiah 11, 2. Uh, and, and there's no mere angel. It tells us uh, one, uh, one uh, writing said, there's no mere angel is the source of this grace. This grace comes from the triune God, from the who is, who was, and, and uh, to come. But also it comes from the true spirit. And also it's going to come from the Father as well.
Now let's kind of deal with this next part. It says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. Now think about the firstborn or dead. What do you think is kind of going on here? Why would John mention that, that specific phrase? Well, 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 let's first just deal with the word um, here. We know as it was Christus. Um, Jesus um, right here is in a genitive right here. Um, and it's describing it's, it's genitive is going all the way back um, um, to the one who is, who was to come. Um, I mean, which is part of the Trinity um, uh, right there, who is, and who was to come. But now it's talking about this Jesus Christ. Um, this is the true fulfillment, the messianic, you know, the messianic fulfillment pr uh, prophecy that the Messiah is going to come. This word Christ is actually, uh, it's a Greek word, but the Hebrew word for this word Christ is called Messiah. And Messiah deals with um, the triune, I mean, deals with um, this um, this holy set apart one. We notice Iusus, which is Jesus himself. And Jesus himself is the only faithful witness, the true faithful witness. And we know all the prophets in the Old Testament were faithful. Isaiah and Jeremiah, they was able to, whatever they said, it came true. But they needed a Messiah. They needed a Messiah as well, though. They wasn't perfect. Jesus is the true faithful witness because not only he spoke the words of God, he also lived out the word of God. And so, and this same faithful witness, uh, we see this also in um, throughout um, the scriptures. And um, I think we saw this in John 3.32. And uh, I think it's, it's a John 18, 37, the faithful witness. And now Jesus is the true, in the sense of faithful witness. And, um, and, and, and he goes on, like I said, the word, the firstborn of the dead, um, the preeminent son uh, raised from the dead. He's the true preeminent son, that he is the true one, that he is the first one out of many more, that he was raised from the grave. And there's going to be many more that's going to be like him, that he's going to redeem, that he has redeemed to himself, that he has made right before the Father. Also for them, they're going to be raised from the dead as well. Yeah, that also reminds me of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. When we come back, I'm going to read that text. But it's going to be 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What is up, guys? We're back. Can you hear me, Creston? Hey, yeah, I'm here, man. All right. Um, as you guys remember, before the break, we were talking about Christ, the firstborn. And, um, there's a text in 1 Corinthians 15. Kind of John is drawing this same language. Um, can you still hear me, Creston? Yes. Okay. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, um, but the fact is Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man death came, by also by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all may be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. And it kind of reminds me exactly what uh, John is writing in Revelation. What's kind of your thoughts about that? Yeah, man, um, I think it just reminded us of that the, the promise of the Father, that 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 the Christ that they uh, prophesied throughout the Old Testament. Uh, one day he will, uh, he will be put to death. We see it in Isaiah fifty-three, um, how he was going to be crushed for the iniquity, and uh, it pleased the Father to crush him. And uh, but also we see uh, text throughout the Old Testament representing 
that this son that was died that one day he's going to be raised from the grave. And so um, uh, this is just a fulfillment of scriptures of Christ being a uh, being raised from the grave as being the first fruit. Um, but also for those who die in Christ, they will be raised as well with Christ. And so uh, we see this uh, this language, um, uh, like I said, not only Revelation, we see it in, in Paul letters, um, but also Jesus himself. He told he told the apostles, I mean, the disciples several times, about three times. And that's why he's a faithful witness. He told them three times that, hey, the son of man will be put to death. He's going to die. But, hey, he's going to be raised from the He's going to be raised. And so he kept telling them over and over what's going to happen to him. So the faithful witness is truthful. And, um, and so he was raised as being the first fruit. And there are going to be many more to come from him. But also this ties into Revelation 20. Um, Revelation 20 kind of picks up on this as well. I think in verse in, in verse 5, I'm just going to touch on it just for a second. It said, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the third thousand year were ended. This is the first resurrection. Uh, then it goes on to say, so blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power. Uh, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And so, but before I said Admir, how would normally, how would they deal with this resurrection in um in a, a historical pre meal? As far as what verse you're talking about, uh, like in verse five in Revelation twenty, it's talking yes. about the um the first resurrection, and um blessed are those who shares in this first resurrection, in Revelation twenty verse six. Yeah. So um. Me and Chris got a whole uh, debate on this issue right here. You guys look to that episode as well if you want to. Uh, different views of Millennium. But um, for me, I just see that, you know, I try to, it's what, I guess you would call it a natural interpretation. Basically, you try to make the text as literal as the text kind of makes it without being, you know, heretic. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> if the text is using symbolism, we still read the symbolism, but we try to see, you know, what is this text actually saying? And so, for me, I would see that that first resurrection like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, it's for those in Christ. And the rest of the dead are those who are in hell right now that are waiting judgment. Yeah. And so, um, and I think just the, 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 the difference is there with the, um, with the Amil approach, or I think, I think it might even be diversity within Amil or even historical pre-mill, how to take this verse. Um, but we see the first uh, resurrection is, um, we see it as those who are, um, in this text, those who are raised in Christ from death to life, as we are born into this world as sinners. Um, but we come to know Christ as it's like our first resurrection from the death. But also it's going to be another resurrection that God's going to raise us up with our new bodies. And so, um, and the case said natural, uh, and like I said, I push back and say natural again. But that's the joy about us working through this, that we get to be able to have some time eventually in Revelation 20. We kind of can go more in depth on this text. But uh, but where is this language coming from on res resurrection? I think it's coming from Jesus. Jesus was the first resurrection. And now by him being the true first resurrection, that we're going to have our first resurrection as well. But those in Christ eventually uh, by us going to be raised with Christ. Uh, and um, well, we have it now, though, those who are believers, we would say we have it now. But but right here, though, is that Jesus is the first of many more to going to be raised um raised up and everything uh not just from um um our sins you know we raised from death to life but also we're going to be raised with god in heaven 
forevermore. Hmm. That uh, leads to like the next part of the verse as well, where it says, um, not only is Christ the firstborn of the dead, it says, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, when you think about that, just hearing that, I mean, how else can you interpret that besides Christ? He's God. He's a supreme ruler. There's no, no one who has more power than God. You may think of like, you know, the devil. We have a term in theological, theological world called um, dualism. Basically, like you have the devil on one side, you have God or Jesus on one side, and they're duking it out. But like in scripture, you see like there is no one that can compare, like compare to even God. God is holy. He's transcendent. He's completely set apart from his creation. There's no one like God. And John's doing the same thing, telling us here that like he's the ruler of the kings. So imagine, I guess you could look at it in two specific, like in the context, um, Domitian, he was a, a you know, an emperor. I guess you consider him such a, a king or, or some sorts. Christ is even rule over him. It may seem as though the ruler here in this context, Domitian, is a you know a great king and he has all authority. You must fear him, but Christ is even a ruler over him. And so it's pointing back to like even in those sufferings, Christ is coming again. But right now, he's he's ultimate ruler. He's sovereign. Yeah, this this word uh, ruler. I think in the Greek it's just archon because I think this word is a you know it's just a regular uh, nominative uh, noun. And I think yeah. we see the same word ruler right here dealing with the um, I think in Luke or um, I think it might have been dealing with the centurion. Uh, one of the leaders of the, um, um, or, the or I think like the one, yeah, the centurion, uh, one of the, the leader or soldier um, they had, and Jesus was able to heal. Um, um, I think his daughter was, was dead. He was able to heal him. So now it's, uh, if, you know, so now he uses the word, hey, ruler, not just this, not just a Roman Caesar. I don't think he's referring to like Roman Caesar right here or Domitian or Diocletian. I don't think it's just one ruler, like he's talking about the Roman government. I think Jesus, I mean, if for him giving this test right here, this is also talking about the Jewish leaders as well. This is talking about the centurions, all the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees. So Jesus is the ruler of the kings of all the earth, all the leaders on earth, not just in the sense of the Roman emperor, but the high priest within Judaism, even with the the leaders within Judaism, Jesus is king of all of them. And man, you think about why would this be so encouraging right now? Well, those same leaders of the Sanhedrin or the same leaders in the uh, uh, the high priest, the Roman governor, all these leaders right now are the ones bringing persecution to the church in Asia Minor. So mm -hmm. now it's letting them know this, that regardless of what is facing by these kings, I am the king over them. So regardless of the suffering and the trials you're going through, I am the one that's king and my supremacy doesn't have an end. That no leader with either Jewish or Gentile or any type of king upon the earth, guess what? I'm the ruler over all kings. Hmm. I hate to dive into this right now, but like, you know, it, you know, this year was like election year and it's like even it was so many people going crazy. But it's like we forget that like no matter who's in the office, you know, like Christ is like still sovereign no, regardless. He's a God of providence. And so we can rest in those things like, you know, no matter what. And so I like kind of how John is drawing that. I mean, who more can like, you know, relate to these people than like somebody who's 
of course, by this time period, all the apostles are dead. John's the last one. He should be dead, but, like, God kept him alive so that he could write this book, of course. But, like, he was burnt alive in a boiling pot. And I'm sure he experienced severe persecution. You go to Acts, all the apostles were beat. And so, like, who more can relate to the people who are being persecuted than John himself? And so that's some encouragement right there, man. Yeah, um, and, and, and that's where, like I say, king, like I say, it's plural. It says kings. So it's no king that's not, that, that's not over him. I mean, I mean, it's no king that is, in a sense of, they get a pass on this. He's over all kings upon this earth, even in America, uh, even in Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe, no matter where <laughs> that, he's kings of all the nations. So this letter written to the church, letting the Christians know that are suffering, that this is king of kings. You don't have to fear anybody. Jesus rules over all kingdoms. He's there, man. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Something I guess I'm encouraging too is like I remember a while ago you said back in one of your sermons, like um, we're going through Acts, of course, and Stephen, he's going to get ready to get killed. You know, the end of chapter seven, eight, and uh, in, in chapter six, you see like in chapter six, six and seven, he's not afraid of death because he's going to get ready to like defy the Sanhedrin and kind of preach Christ to them. But like one thing about like great evangelists all throughout the Bible is like none of them were afraid to die because they knew that like Christ was sovereign, and so even though we may die, like our hope. And that grace and that peace we have is because we're justified before the Lord. And so, like, again, the context is Christians who are experiencing. Well, how's that applicable today? You may experience persecution in your family, your jobs, whatever it may be. Like, these same truths that John is writing to the churches here, they also apply to us. And, and, and the language, John, is very affectionate language. You know, he's letting us know that Jesus is a faithful witness. He was the first one born of the dead. But also he ruled all the earth. But let's continue in this verse. And it goes on and says, it says to him, this data right here, to him um, who loves us. And so this same ruler, we are fine <laughs> as he's our ruler because we're on his side. It's different. Mm. He's the ruler and we're on the other side. He's ruler and we are with him. We are able to be resting him. We are protected by him. How do we know this? Because his word right here we see as he loves us. He loves us kind of points to us that, man, who is he talking about here? John saying, um, John is, is writing this, you know, he's by himself in this, but he uses the word us in here. This plural noun, you know, um, it said us. Um, who is he talking about? John is writing on behalf of the church as well. So he's letting the church hmm. know though is that, hey, the same king. He loves us. You don't have to be afraid. Let's look at that verse. Actually, it says to to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. Let me start with the sin part. I don't know if you guys are reformed Baptists out there doing catechisms, but question number 20 and the Baptist catechism says, what is what is sin? And the answer they're supposed to respond to is sin is any want or conformity unto um, basically transgression against the law as well says that. And so like in the kids catechism, the conformity part, it says, you know, not being what God's want, not doing what God's want, and then breaking his law. So sin is all those things, but primarily, of course, you could say breaking his law. But notice how John says, again, the Bible is written for two believers. And so this context is two believers. These are churches consisting of believers. And he says, 
to us, he released us from our sins. What greater, how can you, I guess, encourage anybody else and reminding them that like the gospel is exactly what John's doing here. He delivered us from our sins. And that's what he's done like in the epistle, um, his epistles and the letters of first John, second John, third John, as well as the gospel. So, yeah, um, it, it, I think this is the, the variance of different manuscripts on the test of receptors. They said, that, you know, he watched us and um, what on this verse. Um, but I think the other version might say he has freed us uh, from our sins. And so um, I think the different variations there um, for me, I'll probably lean more towards the I would say the majority text on the, he washed us. Um, uh, and so you have the other version we might say, hey, they might lean more towards he freed us. But I think both of them are still kind of getting at the same thing here, that mm -hmm. um, we were in bondage to uh, to sin. Uh, we were in death, you know, and I, we, we was indebted to our sin. Like we enslaved to our sins, uh, but we were made right, you know, by the blood of Christ. So he freed us of sin by his blood. And um, mm -hmm. so his blood is the one that frees us. It had to take blood. You know, we all throughout the Old Testament, it had to be different sacrifices. Uh, but boars and goats, they have to sacrifice every year. They have to bring a new sacrifice. But now Jesus himself, his blood is the final sacrifice. And it's this what we know as this penal substitution or the penal atonement that uh, Jesus is the one that truly not only takes the punishment, the, the penal punishment, which is death, but also in the sense of Jesus brings about the grace and the righteousness, everything else that come with this. We get it all and everything with this atonement of Christ. And so, like I said, this is affectionate language. He not only loves us, but also his blood has redeemed us to himself. And, and his blood keeps us. And the blood washes away all sins. Because think about it. At this time, they're dealing with persecution. They're dealing with a lot of things that are coming their way. And for them, they cannot at any moment they cannot lose their eyes on this because the, the situation that they are facing right now is um, is the things that they are so weak in faith on. And so these things is causing them to doubt and causing a lot of unbelief. And so we're going to learn about this in the different churches. You're going to have lukewarm churches. You're going to have a lot of churches that, are, churches that are people are actually putting up, tolerating with different things. Why are they doing these certain things? Because they are afraid. A lot of them are afraid and they continually um, forgetting that that Christ has redeemed them from uh, redeemed them from themselves. And so this is encouraging languages that regardless of persecution coming your way, Christ is going to keep you to himself because he already paid the price for your sins. Hmm. And, he made, and he made us a kingdom. It talks about the kingdom. Next thing you hear. Yes, let us read that. It says, and he made made us into a kingdom, priest to his God and father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So this language right here, um, to him he loves us, releases us from the sins by his blood. He made us into him a kingdom, priest to his God and father. Well, who else has said that in the New Testament? Sounds like Peter, right? Yeah. Um, I gonna have my Bible right in front of me, but I know it's like in one of his letters that Peter wrote, he says the same exact thing. And so, again, what more encouragement to, like to have? It, you know, John is reminding us of the grace and peace we have in Christ, remind us that how Christ has delivered us from our sins, but also remind us that Christ is sovereign and ruler over all the kings of the earth. How much more could you need, I guess, to encourage you that the Lord be encouraged 
in your sufferings. And, and, can you explain to us this here, here, this priest in this kingdom? Yeah, part? And, 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 and KJ too, regardless of what you're facing on earth, it's already tells us right here, he has made, you know, this is the heirs tent, it's a past tent. He already made us a kingdom. You know, so you you have a kingdom already. You you have a kingdom that you already gonna inherit. And so you, no matter what you're going through right now, you are sojourners in the midst of suffering. Peter is like you said, first Peter. This is more first Peter language. He's writing to suffering people. So no matter how much suffering you're going through right now, he already made a kingdom for you. Hmm. He already made a kingdom. So whatever happening, I'm ruler over this earth and I already made a kingdom for you. And also he listed up that now in the past, the high priest would be the one that goes into the to the room of the holy holies, but now he has made us all priests. Um, now he has made us all priests that are in Christ. He said, a priest of his God and Father. Um, priest, and the, and the word priest is like says plural. And um, he has made us this way, uh, priest to his God, that we're not priest to an earthly temple anymore. We're priest to his God. And this God right here we know as in the sense of his theos. Uh, he's talking about the Father, the priest of his God and Father. He's describing who the God is, the Father right here. Um, and we see this is, he finally gets to the Father. We've, we've been waiting on the Father for a while, haven't we? Starting back in yeah, verse we 4. Jesus, we talked the spirits, now we got the Father. Now we got the Father. This is the same language Paul gets at, but he unpacks it more because he knows what the church needs right now in the midst of encouragement. The church needs the Trinity. The church mm -hmm. really needs everything that the Trinity gives over to us. It needs it. And so he unpacks all this within the Trinity so Christians can leash on and hold on to for them to see that through suffering that, hey, they are not losing in this. Christ already have a kingdom for them. And Christ is not going to lead them because he's already right here with them. He's reigning right now with them. And he's going to take them to a new kingdom with him as well. Hmm. Let's look at this next part. It says, verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes that are from on over him, so it is to be. Amen. So let's kind of deal with that. So one of the um, aspects about Christianity is um, one of the essentials, I guess you would say, is believing, of course, that who Jesus is, what he has done. He's the Messiah, the anointed one. Uh, he's both. Uh, we speak of the hypostatic union. He's both Messiah or, you know, God and also human. Those are essential things. He's born of a virgin. And another one of those things that he's coming again. And so. John is reminding us here that Christ is coming again. So oftentimes you can look all throughout, you know, the history. People have tried to deny that Christ is coming again. They've even tried to deny that this Jesus isn't a made up person. I believe it was like last week you were telling me uh, the week before last uh, you were in a barbershop and one of the people were saying that Jesus is a made up person. But like what hope do we have that one day for those whoever exists in that time period when Christ returns, we'll see him as he is. One more greater joy, right? Man, it, it's giving these suffering Christians, man, the expectation to look forward to it, that he's coming. And so they have hope. They don't have to be faint-hearted um, faint right now. They can have hope, man, that he's coming back again. And, and we, we talked about that at the end of verse 6. He said, and to him be the glory and dominion forever. So his supremacy, his supremacy is known, the Father, but also Jesus you know, in the Father within the Trinity, the Father is the one that kind of oversees a lot of things. Different, I mean, mm -hmm. deficient to have, you know, a sense of different roles here, but they are still, you know, 
one Godhead, you know, three persons and one Godhead. But Jesus does something in his in his work as well. Jesus coming back. He's coming back and he's going to come down within the cloud. And he said every eye will see him. And not only the Christian church going to see him, even those who pierce him. And he uses where they pierced him. Man. These are the ones that pierced him. Um, I am convinced that that these are the ones that are still not believing in him. They still didn't believe in him. The one that pierced him. Even them, they're going to see him as well. And all of the earth is going to wail on account of him. Even so, amen. They're going to wail at him. Either wailing with joy or wailing with God is going to judge him now. All the ones that kept saying that, well, he's not real. He's not going to come back. He's going to judge them. But the other one, but the other church, I mean, the, the true church, the believers, they're going to have a welling of incitement that Christ is truly has come. He said he's going to come. And that's why I said earlier in our text, he said, who is, who was, um, who is to come. I believe it, it mentioned in, uh, I think it was verse, uh, verse four. Yeah, who is to come. That's the same thing here. He's coming. And it's keep reminding us. And, and I wonder how many times they use the word come. Um, in actual revelation, um, I'm pretty sure they use it quite a bit to be able to see over and over to be able to encourage the church that Jesus Christ is truly coming and nothing is going to stop him from coming back um, to be able to redeem his people to himself. Man, what a joy for the Christian church to know that he's actually coming back and things of that nature. So um, it's just a joy. I think it's I think it has it in over 38 verses. The word come in the book of Revelation over 38 verses. We see the word come or coming in, in Revelation. I mean, think about that. John, I think he ends the books off that, you know, come, Lord, come. But that, it feels like, you know, just listen to this. It reminds me of um, John the Baptist when he was, you know, in his mother's womb. He kind of married and like I said, the baby leaped with joy. The reason why I brought that up was because like this Christian walk is one of the hardest things you could do. But like there's so much joy in it being a Christian. But like I don't think nothing else can compare to that day, you know, whether it be tomorrow, next year, whatever day that is, when Christ returns, just to see him finally. And it all, you know, it just a wonderful experience right there, man. I kind of want to touch on something too as well. Um, this right here says every eye will see him, but we have a common, you know, theological view out there known as dispensationalism that says that, no, every eye is not going to see him. It's going to be a secret rapture. And so if you go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, you see that the rapture and the second coming of the Lord is one in the same event. So me and Chris are in agreement here that there is no such thing as multiple comings of Christ. There's only one coming of Christ. And when he comes, that's when the rapture will take, um, take place. And so to believe in a like pre-chair rapture, that kind of takes away everything that John has done here by saying that even in our sufferings, we can trust in the so supreme authority of Christ. Why would we need that encouragement? if Christ will take us out of suffering. And not only in the book of Revelation, all throughout the book of the Bible, God's people have all been people who've suffered. When I say suffer, I don't mean suffering for sin, but I mean suffering for Christ's sake, suffering for being a Christian. And so me and Christians don't agree in the preacher rapture. We both oppose your rapture. Basically, uh, there'll be a time of suffering. At the end of that suffering, Christ will return to take his people out of, uh, before he you know, destroys the world. Okay, what do you think about that, though, man? Yeah. Um, um, I, I would say, let me say one more thing real quick. Uh, KJ is um, uh, regardless of, um, um, you know, even historical pre-mill or even our mill, 
um, that we 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 know that Christ is coming again. We know He will come again, um, and we know that um, you know we know He's reigning right now. Um, but like I say, for other positional and views, a lot of them kind of um, you know when you start talking about you know. Well, the book of Revelation and everything, or the church is God's for the church, is right for Israel. Um, right here, we see is that um, we see another beautiful picture right here, though, is that um, it says that it's a, even those who pierced him and um, not those who continue to pierce him. And use the word, you know, in, in, in past tense, those who pierced him, um, letting us know is it doesn't say that these are the ones that's kind of repented. So I'm kind of like, I said, I'm kind of steady kind of really you know kind of seeing that 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 verse seven is is focusing mostly on those that are continually in a sense of unbelieving in him they all going to see him and know we always also know that you know it's at a white throne judgment that god's going to come back he's going to judge the world i don't know if i answered your question sorry about that oh no you're good I was saying, like, um, as far as, like, you know, the preacher rapture, how God, they believe that God's going to take his people out of suffering, you know. And in the last seven-year period, God's going to be dealing with Israel. But, you know, as for myself, historically, you know, yourself, oh, man, we don't believe in those things. We believe that, like, right now, currently, we are in suffering. And suffering has always been here. And God has never taken his people out of suffering. His people have always been a people of suffering. Not for sin, but for, like, believing in him. And even Christ himself had to suffer. Hebrews says that Christ learned obedience through his suffering. And so, like, why would Christ kind of take his people out of suffering if John is writing to people that they're suffering? And God's not going to take them out of suffering, but in those suffering, they can trust in Jesus. He's reminding them of the gospel. And so that's kind of, I was kind of undermining that. Not undermining, but like kind of, yeah. what's where I guess I would say. And, and that's, what, guess, we're gonna, that's yeah. what we're going to see in verse 9 as well. Um, when we get there, he's going to talk about John being a partner of tribulation. And um, so that suffering is, it's not, you can't avoid suffering. Um, and you're going to see a seven different places also in Revelation. There's going to be tribulation, the great tribulation, the, and um, the, the, the things to come. So this, this suffering is, is the, it's the DNA of the true Christian. They suffer because we know, hey, God is preparing a better kingdom for us. And so for God taking us out of suffering, like people, some people say like dispensational, God takes them out. Uh, we don't see that nowhere in the life of Jesus. Jesus suffered all the way to death. So suffering hmm. happens. They happen to the prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, they happen to the kings in the Old Testament. They happen to the Christians. We don't get a exemption from suffering only until when God comes back and we actually, you know, his final judgment. That's when there'll be no more suffering, no more. Hmm. We got one last verse, man. Let's talk about this real quick. Verse eight. Um, Jesus himself, it says, I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, here in this statement alone, if you were just reading the book of Revelation for the first time, in this statement alone, you have Jesus claiming to be God, because if you go to the Old Testament, who else has said they're Alpha and Omega? The Father, right? And Jesus, even throughout the book of John, if you realize, like John, he's using the same similar language that he used throughout his gospel. Because Jesus, he says, I and the Father are one, I think in John 10. And you come here, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And so it's kind of parallel, the Father and Jesus, how they're one. Of course, we believe in one God. So I'm not saying there's three different gods. One in essence, three distinct persons. But what do you think about that, Crescent? You know, you're exactly right. I'm thinking about now Isaiah 41, 4. And we talks about, I, the Lord, the first and the last, I am he. 
And so mm. now Jesus uses the same language. I am the Alpha and Omega. This is bold language of Jesus right here to tell John this. Then he uses the word. Then he said, I am the Alpha and Omega. Then he said, the Lord God, who is and the was, who is to come. And he uses the word, this covenant name of God right here that we see first time seeing in Genesis chapter 2. This covenant name, when he put Lord God together, that's Yahweh Elohim that we know of. And when you put those two together, in, in actually in English, uh, I mean, in, in or in English, or I mean, in the Greek, it would be the Kyrios the, the, uh, the uh, Theos. Um, and now he lets us know, though, is that this is the covenant name of God. What better way, to, what better words to use in the midst of suffering? This is coming from the covenant God. And God is about covenant. God doesn't leave his people. Is that he's also, like he said, he's the beginning and the end. And this beginning in the sense that God doesn't become into existence right there in Genesis 1.